Welcome to More Than Your Number, a podcast on the Enneagram and personal growth. I'm Teresa McBean, Enneagram practitioner, pastor, wife of over four decades to the same patient and long-suffering husband, mom to three, and Mimi to two practically perfect grandchildren. I am so glad you have joined me for this podcast focused on using the Enneagram as it was intended, as a map for personal growth. Welcome to this podcast, More Than Your Number, um, with me, Teresa McBean, and my co-host for the day, my daughter, Meredith Mexel. Uh, I'm a social six, and Meredith is a social nine. And today, we're going to have sort of a debrief and uh, discussion on our previous podcast, which was done with the lovely Leslie McDaniel, A Self-Preserving Four. Now, we're not going to spend our whole time talking about Leslie. And what do you think, Meredith? I think even if someone hasn't heard that podcast, maybe we're going to offer some new stuff on today. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay, great. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sort of riff off of Leslie's story a little bit, uh, but also add some other uh, key points, I think, that, that come out of it that I think are, I don't know, relatable for all of us. So thinking about Leslie's story, what surprised you the most, Meredith, about her um, her interview? For me, the first thing that jumped out was that she had a hard time finding her type, mm. which I thought was so interesting because Leslie studied the Enneagram diligently and was familiar with different personality tools and also is very introspective. So I would have thought it would have been a little bit easier for her. And yeah. Think if I remember, she resonated with some characteristics of the four, but some of those stereotypes, like being dramatic or being super creative, um, didn't apply as much. So it was hard for her to settle in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think it wasn't until she did an assessment with Beatrice Chestnut, um, where Beatrice just sort of said, "Okay, I think this is your type." Um, this is our hypothesis because you can, you know, never tell anybody what their number is. Everyone's their own expert, um, but then suggested to Leslie to kind of settle in and not be tempted to keep looking for other numbers for a while that Leslie was able to find her settle in place. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So why do you think she had such a hard time finding her number? Well, if you think about fours in general, fours can be pretty self-critical. Um, they do a lot of comparing and unless they're a sexual four, their comparison often leaves them feeling inadequate or a little bit less than. So when you're trying to do an assessment, one of the things you ask uh, type ones is how self-critical are you? So she's going to start off thinking that one sounds familiar. And then if you think about being a two, you think about a four who has deep resonance with a lot of emotions and can really be very empathic and absorb the feelings of others. Their defense mechanism is interjection. Well, it makes sense that when you hear about twos who are good at knowing what other people need, um, who really are able to shape shift in order to uh, accommodate other people to avoid conflict. I mean, there are just things about two that I think uh, a lot of force might also resonate with. 
You know, Meredith, I think the thing of it is, is that if all we're doing is looking at the typical, even stereotypical behavior traits of just type, I think it's really easy to get confused about your number. I totally agree. And I have so much empathy uh, for Leslie because I would say I'd been exposed to the Enneagram for about a decade before I truly found uh, my number is social nine. And first I thought I was a six because I thought I could be a little bit anxious. And then I thought I was a three because I could be a little achieving and maybe a two because, you know, I, uh, I do like to help other people, but finally landed on social nine with input from others like yourself who are honestly really educated hmm. um, in the Enneagram. So again, like Leslie, I did not identify with the typical stereotypes of a nine. Uh, yeah. You know, I think for both, for all of us, because in a minute we'll, we'll talk about my own journey, but for all of us, I think that what really helped was when we began to think about subtypes, not just types. And uh, for those of you who don't know what subtypes are, um, there's an Enneagram theory that I think Beatrice Chestnut and Uranio Pius do such a good job developing in their work. But here's the theory that you're, you're born not just with your type, but also with the way your instincts sequence. So lots of people write about instinctual, sequ- uh, instinctual variants. I think that's... Um, Uh, probably uh, Enneagram Institute language with Russ Hudson. But what B and Uranio talk about is instinctual sequencing. And in their particular theory, which I think came a lot of the work of uh, Claudio Naranjo, if I'm not mistaken, that you have a dominant instinct, one that is almost hyperactive, and you've got a secondary instinct, which is a little bit more balanced, And then a repressed instinct where you unconsciously push the wisdom of that instinct away. So you've got self-preservation, social, and sexual instincts. Now, the way you find your subtype is you discover what your dominant instinct is. You marry that with your type. And when you put those two together, you get a subtype that is much more uh, nuanced and specific. And what I love about it is it gives you a, uh, a, a particular path forward for spiritual development. Now, let me say one more thing about it, just so that we get the groundwork layered down here for us. Um, when you think about the instincts and the behavior traits that go with each one of them, and you think about the behavior traits for each type, Within each type, there's always going to be one of the three instincts where the behavior traits are at a bit of variance with the behavior traits of the type, which means there's more internal paradox. And it means that these are called the counter types. And this is where I see most mistyping happening. So to go back to your original question, what did, why did Leslie struggle? I think one of the reasons is, is self-preservation four is the countertype. And in your case, social nine is a countertype. So no wonder the two of you struggled to come up with it because you not only have internal paradox, but when most of us are teaching about type, we try to be as general as possible. 
And neither you nor Leslie would resonate with those kinds of general conversations. Yeah, I think that makes sense. So would it be fair to say that you might recommend to someone who's having trouble finding their number just from the more generalized information that they might want to dig a little bit deeper? Oh, absolutely. Consider subtypes and get an assessment. Yeah, I mean, that would have saved me a decade of wondering where I could really have focused on the personal growth. So I'm lucky enough to have a built-in assessor (laughs) in the family. But I would also say, you know, to people, I mean, I don't think it takes much time, does it? No, it takes about an hour and you can get an assessment. And, um, you know, everyone's their own personal expert, but sometimes an objective eye, like just on a personal note, I think the people I've had the hardest time assessing are people I'm really close to. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think having a little bit more objective eye is really great. And um, it gives you a good hypothesis to work on and some suggestions for further discovery. Yeah, mom. So um, not to out you, but you might have also had a little bit of trouble finding your number up front. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? So this is really embarrassing because like Leslie, I've spent my whole life being fascinated by different tools. Um, Uh, Even as an undergraduate at the University of Virginia, I spent a lot of time in the the learning lab um, being a guinea pig for graduate students because I was so excited about tools. So it was such a blow to my ego uh, to discover that I, too, for years thought I was misidentified. I was misidentified as a three. And why was that? Uh, Well, your dad told me he thought I was. And when I, did you ever listen to him? <laughs> that's a whole nother podcast. Just which, kidding. Just kidding. That's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> and it would be very interesting. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think other people thought I was a three and, um, and it's, and it turns out that I am a social three, which means that I am dominant as are you with this social instinct. And people with a dominant social instinct are very, um, uh, can be, not always, but can be very other focused. So I think it's not surprising that if people that I really respected told me I was the three, I believe them. Now, here's why. Because Uh, I'm so self-doubting. Yes. As a six. That makes sense. And you're a social six. And I'm a social six. So I'm always listening to the collective. And I'm self-doubting. And one of my personal growth works is to own my own opinion and find my own voice. And I was like, well, geez, I must be a three. And the other thing that really killed me about that was that the passion for three is self-deceit. So when I'd read the three stuff and it didn't quite resonate, I would say to myself, well, I just must be super (laughs) self-deceived. It was a, it was a cluster cuss. Yeah. And I, I mean, I experienced similar in the fact that I got a lot of feedback from folks that were close to me to look at eight. Yes. Um, and that was quite an experience because I looked at it and I was like, well, wow, I don't feel anything like this. And am I that assertive? And, and I think it took a lot of work for me to figure out that also presenting that gut instinct or that reaction, um, of a nine, you know, can, can, can look a lot like an eight. And so there was just a lot of work that I had to do. And, and I had to realize that even those closest to me, while they knew, um, 
they, they knew how to perceive me, but they didn't know my motivation and they didn't know what was going on in my head. So I really had to dig in. Yeah. And I think if you, if, if folks will recall eights, nines, and ones are all in the body center of intelligence. So I think when we would watch you sometimes really go quickly into action uh, in insert assertive ways, you know, upon reflection, it was really social nine stuff. It was not, it was not that kind of eight energy that is, you know, um, moving for power. I mean, in fact, you're kind of the anti-power person, right? Yes, but I mean, all, all good stuff to, to discover in the process. And I think we all learned a lot. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, as everyone went on that decade long journey with me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think, you know, um, I think I really like what your brother says about this is that uh, the Enneagram really is all about the journey. And it's the, the journey is as important as it, and as interesting and as necessary as really nailing down your type. Now, you need your type. And I would say you need your subtype, especially if you want to be on a growth path and have specific suggestions about what to observe questions to ask yourself, practices to put in place. But he's right in the, in the most, at the most macro level, like the journey really leads to self-discovery. So that's really, that's really amazing. Yeah. If you're enjoying this podcast, you might be interested in what else Teresa has to offer. From intro classes to individual assessments to one-on-one sessions and advanced classes, Teresa has a lot going on. To learn more and to sign up for the waitlist for upcoming classes, visit TeresaMcBean.com. You know, I think for me, I know that you were really taken with the fact that it took her a while to, to get her type. Um, what really struck me in the interview, among a bunch of things, but if I had to pick one thing, was this concept that Leslie, because she's a coach and, and um, gosh, I just love listening to her because I can tell she's very capable of being present for people. And I imagine she's just an amazing uh, support for others. But what she talked about is once she landed on four in terms of her own growth path, one of the concepts that was essential for her was this idea of instead of just simply being empathic and feeling everyone's feelings and then interjecting, which basically means taking other people's feelings into yourself and really thinking they're yours. She has learned to work on cognitive empathy. And that's one of my new phrases that I just love. Yeah. I mean, I never even heard that phrase before. And I learned so much just from listening to her talk about her own journey. Yeah, it was amazing. So what she means by cognitive empathy is that she doesn't, as a, as a four, doesn't get sucked into other people's feelings. Um, but instead, she can meet people where they are, understand their feelings, but also understand their mind and how they're thinking about that. So Leslie is in the heart center of intelligence. You're in the body center. I'm in the mental center. And so (laughs) that sounded funny. (laughs) 
<laughs> that sounds funny. That the head um, center. The head center. <laughs> the head center. You're not mental. You're in the head center. Well, some people do call it the mental okay. center. Okay. okay. They, they don't mean it insulting. But okay. I can see where you got that from. <laughs> Um, but the head, the heart, and the body are the gut center, right? And so um, Leslie's work involved moving up from her heart into her head space. And my work has been about moving from my head space into my heart space. And then we both were like, well, what the heck happens to our body at that point? We hadn't thought about that so much. Uh, so that was one of my many takeaways from, from how her, her growth in her typology is not only benefiting her, but I imagine really benefited her clients. Um, when you think about your number, Meredith, what is, what has growth been like for you? How's it helped you? Yeah, I think learning how to access the, the head center, I've really worked on, processing more than reacting um, in situations, especially in scenarios where I feel especially triggered. So you being in the body center of intelligence means that you are very reactionary. Yes, absolutely. And you just go to action, which I think is something that, that um, we've always noticed about you um, um, as, as be going into action very quickly. So yeah. what more does that mean for you? Well, just taking a specific example or category, what I've realized is that when I feel maybe I'm being left out or okay. excluded from a situation, whether it's personal or professional, I can react very strongly to that. Okay. Sometimes before gathering all the facts. Okay. Um, and sometimes I'm not even interpreting that situation correctly. So if I pause to prepare and give myself space to process, I can often follow whatever situation is occurring up with the question or learn how to state my needs and preferences that move us towards resolution as opposed to maybe withdrawing out of um, anger, fear, or, or participating, but maybe having a resentment afterwards. So that's been huge for me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I still don't get it right all the time, or maybe even half the time, but I think it's also been uh, helpful for others too, because I think when I do react negatively, it can be impactful for others. Did you realize how much um, anger and resentment was resonant with you being in the body center until you knew your Enneagram? No. Yeah. I would have said that I had very little, um, very little access to that. Mm -hmm. So it's true that, that one of the things that is uh, uh, problematical for nines is that you, they do not have a lot of access to their own preferences or their own feelings. So here you are body center um, and really uh, in typical nine fashion, not really really aware that that's what's going on with you. Yeah. And if you're not aware and you can't access it, you can't do anything about it. Oh, very good point. So what about you on your growth journey? Well, um, you know, I, I think you and I agree that um, both of us um, having point three to go to and wanting to succeed at things, um, both of us are a little frustrated that we uh, spent so long 
um, thinking we were supposed to be working on completely different things. (laughs) (laughs) So there's that. But I think what's really been helpful for me is to become aware of how much self-doubt drives everything I do. Wow. You know, I, um, as a social six, um, do not resonate with fear the way a self-preservation six would resonate with it. And it would really irritate me when people would say, oh, you're a six, you must be scared of flying. And I'd be like, that's not what my fear, you know, that was a part where I was like, maybe I'm not a six, you know? Um, but what I've learned is that my self-doubt comes from fear of making a wrong decision that will affect my safety, my security, or the safety and security of the collective group, whether it's our family or my my ministry uh, community. But that has been absolutely huge for me. Interesting. And I never would have guessed that, you know, you don't project that or not that I ever was aware of. Yeah, I think that that's why we're the have to be the experts on our own number and really dig deep because not only I think is it something that most most people would say that sixes look very certain, especially social sixes, you know, which is another reason why I had trouble coming up with social six, because in the description, it would say Social sixes like uh, systems and they like to have a lot of um, expertise in the system. Um, (laughs) 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 Hence my obsession with the Enneagram, uh, the 12 step movement um, and um, my faith experience. All of that was lived out. Yes. Um, So we can see that throughout my life. But this idea that I would be certain, I sound certain, but I never internally experience certainty. And that's probably really true that when you sound certain, it was probably preaching or working with others. I mean, different scenarios than what you're describing. Yes. Yes. I think that's true. So I, I, again, we point out another reason why I think it is so difficult sometimes to land on our own type. Yes. And I'm terrified of flying. So maybe that's why I thought I was a six <laughs> going back to those stereotypes, even though I do it all the time. I'm still terrified of it. Are you really oh, still yeah. terrified of flying? Still, all the time. I wow. still do it. And I still like it. And I'm afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, there you go. The nine who sees many sides to a situation. <laughs> I love to fly, but I'm afraid the plane's going to crash. <laughs> I bet you listen to all the instructions though, don't you? I do listen. I am familiar with the safety card and I sit in the exit row whenever I can. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's pretty much what I do too. Um, so yeah, I think that for Leslie, for you and for I, I think that whether it's learning about our center of intelligence or whether it's learning about our instinct um, or whether it's learning about the common behavior traits of our type, There's just so much that the Enneagram can help us learn to observe and explore. Yeah, totally agree. Meredith, as you've listened to Leslie, what did you hear that really helped you maybe understand fours a bit better? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, when you listen to her, even I was feeling her sorrow, like Mm -hmm. how much she feels sorrow and how she's really working hard on joy and contentment and and how to find those. So 
you know, I'm wondering or thinking, you know, maybe that's typical of fours to feel sorrow. And that's something that I can really tangibly take away from her story. Um, and maybe for that self-preserving for her working hard to try and fill that void. So, you know, I know all the subtypes are different. Um, you know, do you think that's accurate what I heard and, and how might that make her different from the other subtypes? Yeah. Well, I think that, um, what B and Uranio teach us at CP Enneagram Academy is that when it comes to subtypes, fours and sixes have the most differentiation in types. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, Leslie is a four and all fours are very unique in their own right. Um, but what makes her um, a self-preserving four is that for self-preserving fours as a general rule, and I hate to generalize about fours because there's nothing general about them, but as a general rule, instead of taking that sadness, that comparing mind that they have, that underlying belief that something is missing, maybe wrong with them. They, um, they take all that angst and turn it into action. Um, I've even heard B uh, chestnut say at times that self-preserving force can kind of look three like interesting. Yeah. Because they, they work hard to overcome what they feel is missing or acquire what they feel like they want or need that they've seen in someone else and maybe felt a little envious about. This is a very different experience than the other two. So we typically call the social four the sad four, and I think they fit more of the stereotypical four that is really um, struggles with comparison and feeling inferior and struggles with envy and is very expressive about their melancholy and sadness. But then the sexual four is called the mad four. Interesting. I know. And I don't think that, um, well, the self-preserving four, like Leslie is, often looks sunny and happy, and that can be hard to type. But the sexual four is often pretty mad and um, reactionary. And so they take their feelings of sadness and discontent and comparing mind that leads to envy. And they sometimes feel a little superior to others. Interesting. Which can make them kind of mad and maybe a tiny bit judgmental. Mm. So yeah, those are the three distinctives about those three types. Um. I wonder if um, if that's helpful to other fours, maybe, or somebody struggling to know their type. I certainly hope it is, because just like um, all of us, these subtypes can really make a difference in terms of understanding distinctive behavior traits. Okay, mom. So this is our second podcast. The first one we did was a response to Yelena, uh, who was an eight, and obviously we've been talking about Leslie today, who is a four. So both great and powerful conversations with very different people. So um, did you notice anything that was similar between those two conversations? Well, I think one of the things that both of them really um, highlighted, which made them to me 
awesome people to learn from is both of them were aware um, of how their blind spots, that things that they didn't see about themselves um, were problematical. And both of them were very uh, committed to making changes. Now, I think that um, you can sort of, you know, a, a four is on the quest for authenticity. So fours are often very interested in self-discovery. Um, so that's not so shocking for a four, but it's pretty shocking for an eight. Yes. You know, because eights are not typically as uh, open to self-reflection as Yelena was. So in a way, the eight can often have a very different and opposite vibe than the four in that way. But I think what both of those previous podcasts highlight is when one opens oneself up to being willing to consider that there is growth possible, then it's a beautiful thing no matter what your type is. So I think for Yelena, we had um, uh, a lot of certainty about who she was, a lot of clarity. And with uh, Leslie, we had more ambivalence about that. Um, but both of them came to the place where they could say, my particular way of seeing as an eight or as a four or as your case, a nine or me as a six, that they create particular blind spots that are very challenging. Yeah, I know for me, um, been able to learn a lot from both of them and also from you. So even though we're different, there's a lot of ways for us to learn from each other. Yeah, yeah. And that sort of reminds me um, that we not only do podcasts, but we do webinars. And so in the show notes, we'll make sure that we have directions for you to get to the webinars where I am slowly and surely working through the blind spots for each typology. So for more details on that, you're going to be able to go to our um, webinar. Check it out. Check it out. We'll figure out how to do it. I have no clue how to do it. <laughs> That's one of my blind spots. Technology. No, no comment. <laughs> details. <laughs> planning. Not all true. Of, all Not of it's true. hard. All of it's hard for me. All right, uh, Meredith, anything else you think of that we need to hit for this one? No, just uh, thanks to Leslie for being willing to share her story. And uh, thanks to you for always keeping us on track. All right. This has been so fantastic. We thank you so much for joining us here at More Than Your Number. Um, we really appreciate your uh, listening to us, and we hope this has been helpful. As I said, we'll put some details for other opportunities for you down in the show notes. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the podcast, More Than Your Number, about the Enneagram and personal growth with Teresa McBean. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to receive notifications of upcoming episodes. Teresa also hosts free monthly webinars that hone in on specific types. These webinars offer opportunities to hear an overview of each type at no charge and without the commitment of signing up for a class. To sign up for the replays of these webinars and to register for notifications of upcoming webinars, visit TeresaMcBean.com. Mm-hmm.